Hi, I'm Rochelle Jackson, and this is The Crime Couch. I'm an investigative journalist and true crime author, and I know who's who in the zoo. The crims, the cops, and the interesting individuals in between. So get comfy and join me here on The Crime Couch. It's going to be one heck of a journey. The Crime Couch is proudly sponsored by Bank Vic. It was the execution that created headline news across Australia. Alphonse Gangitano was the head of the feared Carlton crew. The Black Prince of Ligon Street was gunned down in the laundry of his home in January 1998. Charlie Bazina was the lead homicide detective tasked with investigating Alphonse's death. He spent 17 years in the homicide squad and investigated more than 300 suspicious deaths, including 150 murders. Charlie's also an author, media commentator, a corporate speaker, security and risk consultant and private investigator. Welcome back to The Crime Couch, Charlie. Thanks, Rochelle. Great to be here. How would you describe Melbourne's crime scene prior to Alphonse's murder in early 1998? Well, the crime scene was basically that pretty much what it is at the moment. There's uh, crime gangs going out and about the places. There's organised crime out there. But as we all know, it all came to a, a big crescendo when we had the underworld murders going on, and that was uh, post the murder of Alphonse Gangitano, which was basically a standalone. And as per normal, I was the on-call team leader on that particular day uh, and got called out that a high-profile underworld figure had been uh, murdered in his home. And from that point, we started to investigate the case and uh, we eventually came to a conclusion, but uh, not the conclusion I would have wanted. Alphonse Gangitano, he's a man with quite a reputation. He was nicknamed the Robert De Niro of Ligon Street. Was he really a gentleman? No, not at all. He'd, you read his police dossier and he put himself down, because you do when you interview these uh, crooks, What's your occupation? He put himself as a gentleman, property developer, etc., etc. And here's a guy that came from a very well-respected family. He went to respected schools and the likes, but he was the, uh, okay, the black prince down the track, but he was the black sheep of the family and uh, brought certainly a lot of disgrace to the family. Lived with a lovely lady. And he had two uh, daughters through that uh, particular association and had a hatred of police as police had a hatred of him. And uh, going prior to his murder, he went off the rails he was uh, even a, a liability to his fellow crooks or criminals uh, in the underworld that they wanted to distance themselves from him. For example, some, some time prior to that, he shot dead Greg Workman over a $5,000 debt of sorts. There was two women that were actually eyewitnesses that were scared off and went overseas. So subsequently, that, that case was brought forward against him. That was withdrawn. And that was at a time when his fellow criminals wanted to distance themselves because he was bringing the heat basically on, on them, upon himself, from the police, and they didn't want that. They want to go about their criminal enterprise away from the police highlight, but the Alphonse, he just didn't care. He was depicted in a lot of these Underworld series on television. And it's amazing that you go through your career of 17 years at Homicide, even the other crime squads I was at, that you never come across these people. And uh, here am I finally meeting... Uh, Alphonse, while I stood over his body in the laundry, he was a, a dead person in the laundry, and that was my first encounter, and away I went from there to investigate the crime. How would you describe Alphonse's death? 
Look, Alphonse's death, he certainly was a person of uh, delusions of grandeur. He would certainly would never want to be found dead in his laundry, in his underwear. You know, he wanted uh, either De Niro or one of these, uh, Anthony Balderas or someone like that to portray him in a movie that he wanted to be in, etc. I guess I say, delusions of grandeur. The fact it was, wasn't a really bloodied uh, crime scene as such. There were a number of bullet holes that we then built up a crime scene and then him in the laundry. But you then know, and the crime scene tells you a story, that his cohort at the time he was with was Graham Kinneborough, the Munster. Old school crook, old safe breaker, old SP bookie. But then the story he didn't develop with us uh, as it went on and how he set, then set up the crime scene for the poor de facto to find Alphonse's body. So, look, he met his, uh, his right whack. You know, you, you, you play in these circles. He'd uh, distance himself with other offenders. He was on bail at the time for a very serious assault in the King Street nightclub with him and Jason Moran, and things developed. And you look for motives. And one of the motives were, were that he'd fronted court that day on a further remand, and the indications were that he was going to plead guilty. That certainly would have put Jason Moran in a very bad light. Very interesting, isn't it? Uh, you see the reputation and then you see the man, and particularly you've seen him in a circumstance which, as you said, he never would have wanted. The days leading up to Gangitano's execution, was he living in fear and did he know that he had a contract out on him? I don't think he was living in fear. He had a driver, pseudo was a security person. That he went to court. He was on a curfew. Had to be inside by 9 p.m. that that evening. I don't think he. There wasn't a contract per se. Something developed, and as I put the case together, that uh, Jason Moran was behind it, because Jason Moran was going to be in a very bad, awkward position that uh, we would have then dealt with Alphonse at trial, had him dealt with with those assaults. He then he would have become a witness or a person against Moran. Moran wasn't going to stand for that. Um, and he was the obvious suspect. We then built upon that. But dealing with these underworld murders, very reluctant. You don't get any assistance or, or what have you. You've got to go through the sea of lies and going to the crime scene. It's still vivid in my memory of going to the crime scene in uh, Glen Orchard Way in Templestow, of going down that uh, long driveway. And then, you know, surprisingly, of coming across actually an eyewitness that saw he didn't know who he was, but certainly saw uh, Jason Moran walking down the road. And uh, and then even how the, the case evolved about getting the actual driver that drove, drove Jason there. So it was a spur of the moment. It wasn't a contract as such. And Alphonse's house was um, covered with uh, um, CCTV footage, etc. When I got there, I thought this will be an easy one. I'll just pull out the VHS tape and it'll be the killer. But it uh, wasn't to be. But there are the clues that we all put together on the day. Charlie, Alphonse had... A lot of fierce enemies. Chopper Reed was one who he feared greatly. How many suspects did you have? We had a number of suspects, but Chopper Reed at the time was incarcerated at Risden Prison. And again, it's a matter of making a decision. Was going to go? To, was I going to go down to Risden Prison and speak to Chopper? But you know, the fact that he's incarcerated doesn't mean that someone hasn't killed someone on, on his behest. So I, I went against that because knowing Chopper, that I thought it would have been a futile uh, attempt in, in doing that. And I know that he was dealing with. The night on the murder, he actually was speaking to one of a fellow, uh, a person of, of not so good ilk, a fellow called John Kizon at, in Perth at the time. But uh, he had an alibi, so but he was friends with him. And there was, as I said, a number of enemies that Alphonse had because of his going off the rails. And was he going off the rails because like, he was snorting a lot of coke and he apparently was bashing people, a number of clean skins, including a number of women, is that right, at a King Street nightclub? 
Yeah, yeah. Well, he did in relation to that, and uh, and police included. He might see and he could pick uh, police at nightclubs and the likes, and he would actually, you know, do it quite openly and, and attack ones. And he was granting his extortion in Ligon Street of going to these proprietors and saying, "Well, I need to be paid X amount of dollars, otherwise your window comes in, or you might find your place burnt down." He made a fatal mistake one day of coming out to my old stomping ground out at Footscray. We had a nightclub out there and uh, we were very friendly with the three owners. But unbeknownst to him, there was two security guys uh, and one in particular which people may know is Mohammed Chayuk, one of the Chayuk family out here at Brooklyn and another called uh, Nick the Greek and two not to be uh, messed with. And Alphonse made the fatal mistake, uh, well it was a fatal assault, but made the big mistake of going to stand over the three Italian brothers running this uh, nightclub out of Footscray. And in those days I was at the Footscray CIB and he gave us a bit of notoriety, Alphonse. And uh, it appears in uh, Mick Gatto's book, actually. What happened was he went to stand over the three Italian brothers. He was certainly taken out the back by Mr Chayuk and Nick the Greek, shown his errors of his ways, was significantly uh, beaten up. But to save face, he couldn't then say, oh, well, these bouncers uh, punched me up and, and caused me these assaults. He then said he was, uh, he was assaulted significantly by the Footscray detectives. That, that safe face, that's the type of person that he was. And that's a story that he told Mick Gatto that appears in the book. In actual fact, he, he got his right whack trying to stand over people. So he was a coward, you know, no heart as such. He would pick on uh, ones that he could, could, a big man, as a lot of big men are, with guns. And uh, he was going off the rails, so caused a lot of relief uh, to uh, other fellow criminals when uh, he was actually killed. <laughs> Bank Vic was founded by police in 1974 to help members get a better deal on banking. Things are better today, but Bank Vic's purpose is the same. To serve the police better than the other banks with great rates and personal service. With a branch inside Victoria Police Centre and mobile lenders visiting stations or available by appointment, they're available where and when it suits you. Bank Vic get police because they've been helping them with their banking for nearly 50 years. To find out more, go to bankvic.com.au slash thecrimecouch. Bankvic is the trading name of Police Financial Services Limited, ABN 3307651661. When you drag these identities in and you do interviews with them, I remember, seeing, I remember hearing a, a detective say to me, they wouldn't, even if they wore 10 Rolex watches, they wouldn't give you the time of day. How do you break that down? How do you manage to get intel when there's none there? Well, you try and, to this day and age, even then, you build a case around, around your people. And you then, even with Jason Moran, now we put Jason on our radar quite quickly after that particular murder, Alphonse's murder, and we started going to his haunts. Uh, out at uh, uh, Mooney Pines, Ascot Vale, the Laurel Hotel in Ascot Vale Road. We couldn't find him. And then out of the blue, we get a call from um, corrupt uh, lawyer Andrew Fraser. Uh, Andrew rang me up. He said, Charlie, I understand you're looking for my client. And because Andrew represented so many clients, I said, well, who could that be, Andrew? And I didn't have much time for Fraser. And he said, well, it's uh, Jason Moran. Then you've got to make a decision because I know you wouldn't get the time of day off these people. But either get neg- you might get a negative statement, you might not be saying, you know what, yeah, okay, bring him in. So he brought him in this particular Sunday morning. We did the interview. Name, Jason Moran, Gravener Street, uh, Mooney Ponds. No comment, no comment. And that's where it went. But it was, a, it was an exercise in futility because 
I could have said, no, nope, don't want to particularly talk to him. But you know you're going to get nothing, so you're going to get that evidence. And I knew then that I had a particular photo fit or a particular diagram of, of him and it was so accurate that you, could, you thought it was a negative of a photograph by a particular witness. It what of him actually being on premises that night? Walking down the street and then walking down Alphonse's driveway. This young 21-year-old was sitting in a car with his girlfriend, happened to see this person. We did a photo fit, and because the association was was such a good description of it, that as I said, he could peel it off. And when we interviewed um, uh, Jason, obviously we asked him for a... One, you know the old language, a lineup or an identification parade. He obviously denied. Uh, he said, "No, no, you're not going to do it." We need permission, of course. So we then did a photo folder, and this witness picked him out straight away. That's him. So we're going pretty well, but again, not enough because we work on the issue. What evidence have we got? Have we got enough evidence that a jury of twelve would convict beyond reasonable doubt? Just having a photo folder wasn't enough. And then, surprisingly, as the investigation progressed. We had a very low-level drug user contact us. And he and I don't know why, about a week later, and he said, well, when we spoke to him, he said, well, I, uh, I drove Jason to a location on the night of Alphonse's murder. He didn't know where. He said, Jason rang him. He said, come and pick me up, which he did, which wasn't a, a, smart, which wasn't a, a dumb move because Jason was also on the curfew. So if he's going to drive a motor car, please intercept him. Well, he's got to say who he is, so he's better off as a passenger rather than a driver. That was the purpose of getting this guy. And inexplicably, this driver, this drug user said, um, I took him this location, but it's all about credibility. How do you build up credibility of a low-life drug user with prior convictions in the eyes? Because I'm thinking as a defence, in my defence mode, down the track of a, in front of a jury. But what gave this driver credibility was that he said, I went at, at the directions of, of Jason, I didn't know where I was going. I stopped and Templestowe is very hilly, and I stopped at this location, and Jason walked away. And that gave him credibility straight away because that's then supported by my eyewitness who said I saw an individual walking down the street. Now, had that driver said to me, Charlie, I stopped in front of a house, Jason got out of the car and walked straight down the driveway, I know he's telling us crap. But his credibility was great. I said, how good is this? Took a statement. He told us about going then back to McDonald's at South Melbourne, in Dorcas Street, bought hamburger early hours of the morning as they're driving over the Westgate. Paper bag went over the uh, bridge into the Yarra River, went to Newport Address where he obviously picked up a second pistol. Then he drove him home to Grosvenor Street. I then had to find that pistol. We put divers in, we gridded it, we, we re- re-enacted the location. This is before the big fence that was there today. The divers were diving for about 90 hours off and on because you can't see your hand in front of you. It's a shipping channel, all the silt. And they had to feel by hand. And as an investigator, you've just got to have a line in the sand. And got to a stage, you know, guys, we've done as best we can. Had I found that pistol, I would have charged Jason Moran on the spot. Never found the pistol. And unfortunately, as investigations go, the driver, this drug uh, dealer, uh, ended up committing suicide. He hung himself outside St. Pat's Cathedral. Then I can't use the statement that he made to us. It wasn't worth the paper it's written on because it hadn't been tested in court. Had it been committal? So I had nothing. I had no pistol. had no eyewitness. The only eyewitness I had was the, the, the guy who was in the street. And then the other impact we Wouldn't then... Wouldn't be enough, would it? No. Well, the other impact we then had was because when this poor guy, and there's no blame on this witness at all, when he learned he was involved in an underworld murder, the identification of the identification folder then got weakened. And he then obviously said, well, I'm not too sure if that's him or not. 
that weakened the case again. Went to the DPP, it was Paul Coughlin in those days, who we had a lot to deal with, and uh, very strong in his decision-making and supporting us. And uh, basically they come back and said, well, you just don't have enough to, to charge uh, Jason, and uh, we end up going to inquest. And then we can go into the story about Graham Kinneborough. The interesting thing is the inquest into Gangitano's death did actually name Jason Moran as a suspect. Well, the inquest came up as being implicit in the murder of Alphonse was uh, Jason Moran and Graham Kinneborough. Because what happened was Graham Kinneborough, we could put Graham Kinneborough in the crime scene at the time of the shooting. Our view was, and you, these are the pictures you draw together as an investigator, Graham Kinneborough is there, the de facto was away visiting her sister in St Kilda with the children. Graham Kinneborough is there, Jason arrives, Jason is let in because there's no forced entry. Jason remonstrates with Alphonse, pulls out a pistol, starts shooting at Alphonse as he's running to the toilet because we had bullet hole at laundry as we had bullet holes in the wall. Uh, Graham is there. Graham, uh, the Kinneborough, was very close with Lewis Moran. Um, and um, he then gave himself an alibi. He then left, knowing full well that the de facto was on her way back, went to the local 7-Eleven store, made sure he was put on the CCTV, that was his alibi, and waited until the de facto arrived back. She found Alphonse's body. He then arrived after that and said, oh, when I left him, he was alive and well. But what happened was at the crime scene, we found blood and flesh on the front security door that was embedded there. We found a blood droplet upstairs where the CCTV camera was, the footage, the recording, and that ended up to be Graham Kinneborough's. Interviewed him, we'd got a, a DNA sample of him, so that put him in the crime scene at the time, implicated him, and funny enough how cunning Graham was, during the interview we told him that we had a search warrant for his palatial house in Kew, not bad for a safe breaker, and uh, he then said, oh, well, on the day, this is on the interview, he said, oh, well, on the night of the murder, Charlie, you guys took my car keys. And you had it for a long time. I'm not intimating anything, but all I'm saying is that I find things in, since then in my house. I think I've seen things being moved around. Things have changed. I think someone's been in my house. And that was his insurance policy. Had he not done his cleanup properly, and we found something incriminating, he would have said that was planted. Because as I said to you in the interview, oh. I think you guys may have cut my keys and, oh, and I reassured him that we certainly didn't, but that's how cunning he was. So he put himself away, but that wasn't enough again, but he was implicated through that forensic evidence that the coroner found that both of them were implicit in the death of Alphonse. No rules of evidence at an inquest. We couldn't use that evidence at a trial. Jason has gone to God with uh, Alpha, with uh, Graham Kinneborough. That case will always remain unsolved because they are the offenders. How frustrating is that to know that you know who's done the murder and yet you can't ping it? Yeah, always frustrating because we work by the rules crooks don't. We've got to go by the rules of evidence. We went on this occasion, even though it was a coronial finding of their implicity involved in Alphonse's death, you would have liked a conviction which would have been solved. That case remains unsolved. You know, go with these people. It's like the underworld murders, you know. Why, why are you guys worried about, you know, shit killing shit? basically. But you do it because they're running rampant and the innocent people would have got involved in that. That would have been good. We had one one offender dead and two in the bin uh, charged with the murder, but that wasn't to be. You get frustrated, regardless of who they are. You like to bring people to justice and make them accountable, but we fell short. We've never never convinced the jury circumstantially of, of their guilt. So it would have been an exercise in futility and the money would have been wasted. So 
unfortunately, we're never going to get up there and, and prove it. So that's the technicalities of an unsolved case and a solved case. So really, it's been solved, but because there's no conviction, it remains as an unsolved case. Our solve rate, which is quite high, 85%, is even higher because we know who did it, we just can't prove it. How significant, Charlie, was Gangitano's execution? Did it impact the gangland scene? I don't think it did. Now, what impact it would have had on, on these other underworld figures, but certainly it preempted the underworld murders. Whilst it was, wasn't a, a direct uh, link to the uh, underworld murders, which was brought upon by Jason Moran shooting Carl Williams and the turf war over drugs, etc. This was a standalone, but um, I think may, it may have been a catalyst for other criminals to say, well, geez, you know, police never could, couldn't solve that one, and they might themselves saw themselves as being immune to such. But I can tell you 100% him to this very day that homicide investigators will go their, their length and breadth of wherever they can go, regardless of who these people are, to solve the cases. And the families and Paul, you know, I felt for Alphonse's de facto, the, the kids are now obviously adults as such. She went about her business. Her role was just to run the household, knowing full well that Alphonse was doing what he needed to do, but that wasn't her interest. Her interest was raising her two children and, you know, uh, she's got on with her life. She's a very lovely lady. Charlie, do you think Melbourne will ever experience another gangland war? I think it's inevitable. You know, we went through the market murders years and years ago in Victorian market, etc. We've got organised crime figures. We've now got the significant outlaw motorcycle gangs, the Middle Eastern gangs. It's only a matter of time. We've had, uh, not to the extent of the last underworld murders we've had, but there's always an apprenticeship. You've got the apprenticeship of the children of these underworld figures that have been slain. They're growing up. And more often than not, they stay in the right same realm and they work off their name. You don't know who I am. I'm Carl Williams's sibling. Some are good, some are bad. I'm so-and-so's sibling. I'm this, I'm that. Or it may not, but I think it's only a matter of time. It's gone quiet for a while, but there's been underworld murders, but not to the certainly the numbers that we had in the tit-for-tat killings uh, with the Carl Williams saga. For anyone that looks at the gangland war and thinks it's glamorous, do you want to give a final comment about that? Well, certainly not glamorous. Unfortunately, we work with the media and the media glamorise underworld, underbelly uh, movies where they see cash and, you know, the fact that these uh, crooks doing it. But at the end of the day, uh, you know, they must live with one eye open because other criminals, and, and Alphonse is a prime example with the underworld murders, that other criminals will do it. So they're keeping one eye open for the police. One eye open for other criminals getting getting to them. And it's unfortunate it's the innocent people that they live with that get hurt, their parents, their partners, their children, etc., etc. They become embroiled in it. So it's not glamorous, not by a long shot. And then they've got either they're going to get murdered and killed, as a lot of them have been, uh, as we've seen, not in the numbers, but clearly only because of their association in the underworld has led to their untimely death. Well, Charlie, thank you very much for sitting with me on the Crime Couch. It's been a real pleasure sitting with you today. Thanks so much, Rochelle. Good to see you. Thanks for joining me. I'm Rochelle Jackson, and I look forward to your company next time 